I'd like to begin with a few personal reflections. When I completed my fifth form year at high school in 1995, uh, my parents offered to buy me a present in recognition of all the hard work I'd put in studying for my exams. If my classmates had been made a similar offer, I suspect they would have asked for a new stereo, or perhaps a cool jacket. Um, I might say something about the kind of teenager I was that I asked for this. Volume one of the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. Even at that early stage, I, uh, I hoped to pursue a career as a historian, and it was obvious to me that the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography would be the cornerstone of any serious personal library dedicated to the study of this country. Eventually, I would have all five volumes, published between 1990 and 2000, lined up like blocks of marble on my bookshelf. My instincts about the value of the DNZB have been completely borne out. Throughout my studies and subsequent career as a historian, the DNZB has been my constant companion, and I feel sure this is true for anyone who has studied New Zealand life in any depth. <clears throat> in one sense, however, my perception of the DNZB in 1995 was incorrect. My initial impression that the DNZB would be mainly an academic reference work limited to those prepared to seek out heavy hardback reference books like that one was quite wrong. Today the DNZB is freely available to anyone with an internet connection, and around a third of all hits on DNZB pages come from mobile devices. There's been only 15 new biographies added to the DNZB since 2000, but late last year we made the decision to commission a minimum of 20 new biographies a year on an ongoing basis. It's a source of great satisfaction to me to be involved with relaunching the DNZB after a long hiatus. At the moment there's probably more questions than answers, but the purpose of this talk is to give you some insights into the challenges and opportunities of the DNZB Mark II. But first I'm going to talk a bit about the history of the DNZB. New Zealand's first biographical dictionary was a two-volume work published in 1940 and edited by the parliamentary historian Guy Schofield. It grew out of Schofield's previous work on the New Zealand version of Who's Who and embodied the traditional approach to biographical dictionaries in the Western world. It documented the lives of illustrious and worthy elites across the political, religious, educational, military and academic spheres. The coverage was almost exclusively male and predominantly Pākehā in emphasis and omitted criticism and controversy to protect the feelings of surviving family members. Much biographical material was also included in the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, edited by A.H. McClintock and published in 1966. Soon afterwards, discussions began for a new national dictionary of biography to stand alongside similar dictionaries being produced in the United States, Canada, Ireland, Australia, England and elsewhere. In 1983, historian Bill Oliver was appointed the inaugural general editor of a new biographical dictionary, being produced by the Department of Internal Affairs. The project would be block-funded as a sesquicentennial project, with a team of researchers, editors and other staff working under Bill. The first print volume, which comprised 600 biographies from the period 1769 to 1869, was published in 1990, and four more volumes, under the general editorship of Claudia Orange, were produced at two to three yearly intervals over the next decade. The DNZB team drew upon a wide infrastructure of experts, utilising regional and in some cases thematic working parties to suggest individuals for inclusion. Reference checkers, based in both Wellington and the regions, worked to double-check what authors had written, and a team of editors worked to produce crisply written entries. 
the team entered 15,000 names into its database, from which it made its final selection choices. Bill Oliver determined that from the outset that the new dictionary would not be a who's who of worthy notables in the Schofield mould. He wrote in the introduction to Volume 1 that he and his team had decided to, quote, modify but not ignore the traditional criteria of selection. The DNZB would include the household names you'd expect to find in a biographical dictionary, but also, to quote Bill, people chosen for their standing within less extensive milieu, for their representativeness and for the balance their presence will give to the volume as a whole. There was an explicit aim of balancing ethnicity, gender, region and activity more effectively than had traditionally been the case, move away from the more or less exclusive focus on elites, and for each volume to reflect the society of its time in a balanced way. All told, the five print volumes included just under 3,000 biographies, some covering more than one person, and written by 1,235 authors. An essential element of the programme was five companion volumes, comprising all the entries on Māori subjects into Reo Māori, translated by an in-house team of experienced translators. The programme also completed a number of ancillary publications, such as one drawing together the entries on women who worked for the vote. The programme concluded in 2000 with the publication of Volume 5, covering the years 1941 to 60. The practice of biographical dictionaries is to exclude living people, and at the time the last two volumes were published, a number of key people, notably Sir Edmund Hillary, were still alive and thus not eligible for inclusion. With Volume 5, the original DNZB programme, as planned and budgeted for, had been completed. At that time there was no further funding available, and the series had also reached a point where it had, in a sense, caught up with the present. There were simply too many people from the 1960-80 to 80 period still living at that time to make a DNZB Volume 6 a viable prospect. A team stayed on to manage DNZB matters, and in 2001, with the support of the New Zealand Historical Association, it launched a standalone DNZB website, making all the existing entries freely available. New Zealand was one of the first countries to do this, and one of the few to make all content available without cost. Users could access entries relating to Māori subjects either in English or in Te Reo Māori. This made the DNZB more accessible than ever before, and moved it beyond what had probably been mainly a specialist audience and more firmly into the public sphere. The team also carried out a major programme of image research, adding images to as many entries as possible, as well as sound and video files in some cases. In 2000, the DNZB had been one of the functions or assets shifted from internal affairs to the newly formed Ministry for Culture and Heritage. In 2002, the Ministry commenced work on Tiara, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, an ambitious new web publication programme intended to provide diverse and far-reaching information about New Zealand history, society and the natural world. The Ministry's reference group, which was tasked with building Tiara, also had responsibility for the DNZB. And it was clear that these two programmes, once Tiara was completed, would collectively amount to the single largest body of scholarship available about life in New Zealand in its myriad forms. There was an obvious logic in combining the two sets of data, and in 2010 the standalone DNZB website was discontinued and all the DNZB content was moved into a new biography section of Tiara. This combination of encyclopedia and biographical dictionary is unique in international terms. Biographical dictionaries in other countries generally use thematic essays to draw together biographies related to particular subjects. The DNZB has an encyclopedia 
to serve as its contextual content. The merger brought its own challenges. The DNZB wasn't born digital, and so in some ways it sat uneasily along the tiara text, which had been created with digital formats in mind. At that time, there weren't the resources to really link the two streams together, and this challenge was largely set aside for a future time. The DNZB tiara merger absorbed most of the remaining dedicated DNZB funding, and the last DNZB-specific staff member left the ministry in 2010. From that point onwards, the DNZB was maintained as part of the broader tiara programme. Tiara's build phase concluded in 2014, and after a period of restructuring in 2015, a new research and publishing team took charge of Tiara, the DNZB, and the function of the Ministry's former history group, which had been producing history books and reference publications in various guises for the past 70 years. This represented the culmination of a considerable legacy of scholarship. At a rough count, these groups and their predecessors had produced around 240 print publications, along with nearly 1,000 articles each on the Tiara and NZ History websites and the 3,000 DNZB entries. The creation of the research and publishing team placed all the ministry's reference and history projects, past, present and future, under a single banner. We were at a collective crossroads, and among many other searching questions which that moment prompted, we had to work out what to do with our major legacy projects. In days gone by, our print publications were finished on release. And save the occasional new edition, we were able to close the book, so to speak, on those projects on publication. In Tiara and the DNZB, we had major works of scholarship, which were designed to be ongoing projects, though in quite different ways. For the most part, Tiara could be maintained by updating existing entries, while the DNZB could be updated by adding new biographies. The dedicated teams which had created those two programmes had come to an end once the initial build phases had concluded, and the challenge for us lay in serving the ongoing needs of these programmes in the context of a smaller, mixed-purpose team managing a variety of new and ongoing projects with limited resources. If we made no effort to maintain these programmes, then in a sense the investment in building them would depreciate. The challenge was to somehow keep our legacy programmes up to date, while also remaining focused on the future and getting new work done. In March 2017, the Ministry's Chief Historian, Neil Atkinson, asked me to do some thinking about the future of the DNZB and consider some options for what, if anything, we might do with it. At that time, there had been no new DNZB entries since 2000, save for a one-off batch of 15 commissioned by Tiara's general editor, Jock Phillips, in 2010, to cover some especially high-profile gaps in DNZB coverage. It had been obvious for a long time that the DNZB was falling more and more behind the times, despite the stopgap entries. By that time, New Zealand was the only country with a biographical dictionary which had no ongoing work programme. It was time for us to consider whether we should embark upon new DNZB work, and if so, on what basis. The first question to consider was, is there a demand for new DNZB content? A slightly different formulation of the same question might be, do we still need the DNZB in an increasingly digital world where users can access a broad range of biographical information across many different websites? It's clear that the existing DNZB content is popular and continues to be widely used, and there are an average of two to 4,000 hits on DNZB pages every day. There are 10 or 15 individuals who have a particularly high level of traffic, but the pattern on the whole is that the hits are spread across a wide variety of pages. Out of interest, here are the top 10 biographies for the last 12 months. One, Fina Cooper, 
2. Aparana Nata, 3. Kate Shepherd, 4. Tirapraha, 5. Tapuya Hirangi, 6. Honihiki, 7. Tikoti, 8. William Hobson, 9. Hongihika, 10. Ruakenana. I don't know for sure, but I suspect this reflects the areas of emphasis in the secondary school history curriculum. User research has shown that schools are an important part of our audience, and there is a significant drop-off in usage during school holidays. <laughs> we also have a high level of user engagement with our entries, and regularly receive correspondence about existing entries and questions about when new biographies might be commissioned. DNZB entries are regularly cited in both print and digital mediums, suggesting they remain a trusted resource for academics and members of the public alike. Our overall reason for commissioning new DNZB entries are the same reason we would commission any new web content. In a world increasingly filled with information, there remains a place for high quality content which has been fact checked and produced to a high standard. Wikipedia, to take the DNZB's most obvious competitor, contains a far larger number of entries on New Zealanders than the DNZB could consider under any but the most optimistic circumstances. It is a useful quick reference tool the one only as good as its last contributor. Many entries there are fairly perfunctory or focused on a single facet of a person's life of interest to the contributor and are generally based on readily available, usually digital, sources. There are a number of other websites which provide databases of particular groups, such as business people or scientists. Like Wikipedia, these tend to be based on readily available digital sources and have a fairly narrow foundation of original research. Errors in one source are regularly repeated in others. The DNZB is built on the opposite model. It utilises the expertise of subject experts and professional writers to produce a fact-checked and thoroughly researched entry produced to a high professional standard. The DNZB sinks or swims on the high standard of research it produces. It would, be, it would be impossible to create an infallible resource, but the rigorous checking and editing process provide a, far, a better and more reliable evidentiary foundation than other sources available online. We feel that more than ever there is an ongoing need for high quality online content in an age where we rely more and more on digital sources for knowledge of every kind. As well as being an important resource in its own right, it will also serve as a reliable source of information for other websites like Wikipedia. We concluded that the ongoing public interest in the DNZB justified our efforts to produce new content, if possible, on any scale at all. It was immediately plain that there was no realistic prospect of our launching a new DNZB program modelled on the old one, with a large team working to produce a print volume of 600 entries over the span of several years. There was no funding for such a program, and the DNZB's shift to the digital environment meant that we no longer needed to deliver X number of biographies to be published on date Y. This quickly became our most fundamental guiding principle, that the DNZB is now a digital product and that all new DNZB content would be developed for the digital rather than print medium. There will be no DNZB Volume 6 in the foreseeable future. In part, this decision reflects the shift to digital mediums across the whole of society, but it also reflects the fact that the DNZB just works better online. Short-form encyclopedic resources are well-suited to the web, where they can be easily accessed by users and updated by us. It also reflects where we are at as an organisation, we no longer have the large-scale production line teams which produce the original DNZB and Tiara programs, but rather a single multi-purpose team with a variety of new and ongoing commitments. 
In that context, the challenge becomes finding a way to manage and enhance our legacy projects in a sustainable and ongoing way within our budget and staffing resources. After some months of deliberation and discussion, we decided we would commission a minimum of 20 new biographies every year on an ongoing basis. Since late last year, I've been overseeing the process, this process. I commission authors, oversee the research, writing and fact-checking of the entries, conduct image and media research and licensing, and work alongside our in-house editor to produce final texts before handing everything over to our in-house web editors for publication on the website. The remainder of this talk will focus on some of the challenges and opportunities of this new phase of the DNZB's life. The most fundamental question is how we go about selecting the 20 or so biographies to be commissioned in any given year. Should we still be working towards a digital equivalent of a DNZB print volume, covering 600 people from a particular 20-year time period? Any periodization based around decades is, of course, arbitrary to some degree. Human lives and events do not fit neatly around the turn of the decade. The main advantage of focusing on time periods is that you can conduct in-depth research into the scientists of the era, for example, and compare like individuals to make an informed judgement on who should be in and who out. The original DNZB editors compiled each print volume around thematic research, with the intention that the volume would tell something coherent about the society of its time as a whole. On balance, we felt that there was still merit to such an approach, because, in addition to facilitating the research process, it's generally useful to have some distance in time from a subject's life in order to gain a sense of perspective. It also helps narrow the large catchment of possible candidates for consideration in any particular round. We decided to retain periodization as a guiding principle, rather than as strict beginning and ending dates. If we were to strictly follow the pattern set out by the print volumes, our next chronological time period would be the decades 1960 to 80. Like the last two periods covered by the print era DNZB, this period is chronologically near at hand, and many people who rose to prominence then are still with us. Many who first made their mark in the 1970s are only now reaching retirement age. The other consideration is the many people who rose to prominence in earlier decades but died after the publication cut-off of the print volumes. Some of those who first made their mark in the 1940s and 50s are still with us today in their 80s and 90s, so the book still isn't really closed on those earlier periods. We have decided to focus our immediate energies on the crossover of the 1940-60 and 1960-80 periods, combining people from the earlier period who have died since 2000 and people from the earlier part of the 1960-80 period. All subjects must have died more than five years before the date of publication. To allow some time to gain a little perspective on that person's life, and dispel the idea that the DNZB is an obituary service which quickly produces biographies of recently dead celebrities. The middle decades of the 20th century will be our main focus for the immediate future, but there are two other groups we will also consider. The first is people who are eligible for inclusion in the print volumes, but who, for one reason or another, were overlooked. It's important that we remain chiefly focused on the future in our commissioning practices, so adding people from earlier time periods will need to be done only in very special cases. For the most part, this will be people who have been the focus of new study, such as the Polynesian navigator Tupaya and the cultural go-between Tuai, who have been added to the DNZB over the last six months. Another candidate for conclusion is Robert Gant, a chemist from Greytown whose photograph albums provide a window into homosexual life in the, 19th, in the late 19th century. In the 1990s, when 
the, uh, that period was being researched for the DNZB, Gant was merely a chemist in Greytown. But since that time, his life has become the subject of considerable interest. Adding people like Gant is an important part of keeping the DNZB abreast of changing historical interests. In a few rare cases, we may also commission biographies of particularly high-profile individuals from more recent decades. Web statistics give us the unsurprising news that the greatest user demand is for biographies of very well-known people. And in the digital environment, it makes sense that we commission biographies which will be in particular demand. In 2010, Jock and his team commissioned a biography of Peter Blake, who rose to prominence in the 1980s. And I imagine there would be a similar case for Billy T. James and Jonah Lomu. Once again, these would need to be exceptional cases. With this broad organisational picture in mind, how do we go on to select just 20 or so people for commissioning in any given year? So far, we've commissioned two overlapping rounds of biographies, or a total of 50 entries. The first group, selected late last year and due for publication in September, is a special round timed to celebrate the 125th anniversary of women's suffrage. The subjects are women who rose to prominence between 1940-80, selected by a specially convened expert panel of historians who study the lives of women. <clears throat> we prefer not to announce the specific entries until we publish them, but this list of occupations should give you an idea of the cross-section of people covered by this round. Fiction and non-fiction writers, trade unionist, social and moral activists, artist, broadcaster, athlete, women of mana, scientists, community workers, lawyer and judge, member of parliament. The second group, selected in March this year, are due for publication next year. We envisage that round as a catch-up round, a bit like the 2010 one, where some of the most notable emissions from the DNZB's print series could be added. This group includes scientists, retail manufacturing and industrial pioneers, sports people, health and education campaigner, humanities academics, weaver, publisher, bishop, performing artists, viticulturalist, novelist, lawyer, broadcaster, diplomat, unionist. I trust these descriptions will tantalise you into checking back in to see who the people were. <laughs> this second group was selected by a new standing DNZB policy committee, currently consisting of Neil Atkinson, Claudia Orange, key DNZB and Tiara editor Nancy Swarbrick and myself. This reflects our desire to have as much continuity as possible between the, original, between the past and the present and to draw upon the wealth of experience generated during the original DNZB programme. We are currently in the process of thinking how, about how we might expand the panel for future rounds. The original DNZB programme depended upon the advice of a network of regional and subject area working groups which compiled long lists of possible biography candidates for the, from their areas of expertise. The advice of experts remains important, and we're currently in the process of considering how we might draw on the collective expertise of specialists. We're investigating the possibility of contracting guest editors to provide a research narrative about a particular area of interest, consult with specialists, and provide us with a long list of candidates. We're also thinking about how we might seek expert advice to help us balance ethnicity, gender and region in our selection process, all of which tend to cut across the occupational categories. Expert advice on these subjects would be fed into the annual selection cycle, with the selection committee using it to inform the wider selection process. There's a broader question here about how the selection committee might select any group of biographies from the very broad catchment of potential candidates. The short answer is that we're still figuring that out. 
I suspect that it will be informed in part by particular anniversaries or themes. For example, the centenary of Catherine Mansell's death in 2023 might be a good opportunity to commission some biographies of people working in the arts, or possibly expatriates. The centenary of the foundation of DSIR in 2026 might be a good moment to think about scientists, while the 50th anniversary of the 1975 Maori land march might be a good time to think about the Maori Renaissance or people prominent in treaty activism. Our current thinking is that any such theme would take up only part of that year's group, with the other spaces filled with people from a variety of other subject areas in order to ensure that their biographies are drawn from a variety of interest areas. We shouldn't minimise the fact that the selection decisions are, for the moment, being made in the context of a very small scale of production. At 20 biographies per year, it would take us 30 years to produce the equivalent of the 600 biographies included in a single print volume. We hope that in time we might be able to expand the scale of production, but for the time being it's a start. And a useful way of testing our approach and systems, and to give us a sense of what's possible and practical. The limited scale also prompts the question of whether it's still possible for us to maintain the inclusive vision of the DNZB's original editors. And I think it's inevitable to some degree that the reduced scale will affect our programming, though we are committed to providing a balance between household names and notable people from less extensive milieu. We've had two commissioning runs so far, and in both cases, as I trust the lists of occupations indicated, we've aimed for a balance between these two groups. I mentioned earlier that one advantage of publishing in the digital environment is the ability, ability to update existing content. This is an issue with wide implications. In the context of the older DNZB entries, it gives us the opportunity to fix the occasional errors or omissions which inevitably occur in any work of scholarship on this scale. Papers Past, Ancestry.com and other digital resources have shone new light on many historical needles in archival haystacks. In the 1990s, locating the ship a particular person arrived on could be incredibly difficult, but today it's often the click of a mouse away. Our existing corrigenda policy is to change as little as possible, and 99% of all changes are minor factual fixes of the immigrant ship type. The more complex issues arise where the historiography on a particular individual's life has substantially shifted since their entry's first publication. The DNZB, like any work of scholarship, is the product of a particular historical moment and reflects the thinking and fashions of its times. In some cases, there have been substantial advances in scholarship on an, on an individual's life since first publication, and 30 years of Waitangi Tribunal research has also opened up many new avenues of study. This is particularly the case with controversial figures, and the posthumous reputations of the likes of Donald Maclean and George Gray will probably always be contested both over time and between historians at any particular moment. The biography of William Colenso is an interesting case in point. It was written for Volume 1 of the DNZB, when there was a single, quite old biography of Colenso to work from. The author provided a balanced account based on the material available at that time, but since publication, Colenso has been the subject of extensive new study, which has produced quite polarised interpretations of his life. To some, he is a Victorian polymath, a Renaissance man whose scientific achievements have been underrepresented, while to others he's a hypocritical colonial who sexually exploited a young married woman in his employ. Neither group considers the existing entry to be satisfactory, but finding a middle ground between these positions would probably be quite difficult. From an operational perspective, these issues are challenging, especially when an author has died since publication. 
There are ethical issues with making substantial changes to a piece of writing without an author's input and putting it out in amended form as their work. By way of comparison, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the DNZB's English counterpart, was first published in the late 19th century. In the 1990s, Oxford University decided that the original dictionary had outlived its usefulness and commissioned an entirely new dictionary, including new bi biographies of all the individuals covered in the original version. At what point does a biographical dictionary outlive its usefulness? Is it possible for an entire biographical dictionary, or an, an online encyclopedia for that matter, to be kept abreast of changing historical fashion online? These issues pose some substantial curatorial challenges, especially as we work to keep our eyes focused on the future. In some cases, we might consider commissioning an entirely new biography of an individual, but such cases will necessarily be extremely rare. As part of our revival of the DNZB, we are planning to make a number of changes to the DNZB homepage over the next few months. We're planning to give the page a new look, collect all the contextual information into one place, and improve the search functionality. We hope in time to introduce stronger connections between the DNZB and Tiara, along with other ministry websites such as NZ History, and add inline links between people named in DNZB entries. We will continue to provide to rare versions of entries relating to Maori subjects, and to include images and sound and video recordings with entries. All new entries will be designed for the digital environment, using subheadings in the introductory paragraph to make them easier to navigate. The most important things, however, have not changed. That the DNZB will be produced to a very high standard of accuracy, based upon thorough and comprehensive research. Our emphasis is on continuity between the past and the present. This is a reinvigoration rather than a reinvention. We are very conscious that our predecessors have left us very high standards to meet. It is an honour and a responsibility to be helping bring the DNZB back into production again, and we feel the weight of history upon us, and we hope you enjoy it. I'm just interested in what software you're using to collate entries. Is it... We, um, we still have the original BIS database, um, which was what they, um, the original DNZB used. Um, we haven't yet developed that into a stage where it can be used for current things. Basically, I have them in spreadsheets at the moment. I have all the contenders in spreadsheets, 20 columns or so, which allow me to sort by name, region, um, occupation, ethnicity. Yeah, that's the current. But we will hopefully move into something a little bit more database-oriented. I think one word, or one category has been left out of your list there, and that's engineers. They do the work, it's never acknowledged, we use it every day, and there are some notable uh, examples of work they've done around the country, mm -hmm. but there's no mention of them there. Well, this is just one year's round, so we will aim to balance the, um, the variety over years, there's also no military people, for example. So, you know, this list is far from comprehensive. It really is just the first 20 people we chose, and they were chosen somewhat for their high level of celebrity and the fact they were missing from the DNZB. We're, we're in a, a somewhat catch-up phase at the moment. Um, so certainly, we would really welcome any suggestions for engineers. <coughs> My question is, is quite different. You seem to have rejected using the past material before the dictionary and biography, such as Schofield, 
What's the objection to actually making sure that all of those um, earlier biographies that no doubt the government paid a lot of money for at the time, it shouldn't be too difficult just to scan them or somehow make well, them available in the system? As it happens, you can download the entire Schofield Dictionary of Biography as a PDF from the NZ History website. Okay, so I'd, I'd just throw away my copy of Schofield now. <laughs> That's entirely your choice. They sell for about $100 on TradeMe, so... Tim, that's very, very exciting news, I have to say, and I congratulate you on, the, on your vision. Uh, one of the things that we wrestled with was whether there was a way of making the BIS database publicly available, which would have expanded all the historical content from 3,000 people to 15,000 people. Now, obviously, that is material that was not checked and so doesn't have the same status as the DNZB material, but I nevertheless always seemed to me that it would be immensely useful to have that material publicly available. So I just wondered if there were any plans to, to do that. Um, we have talked about that. Um, there's an ongoing discussion about that. Um, we go back and forth on it for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. Um, there are there is a huge amount of material in there which is of a lot of value and, and certainly anyone now who wants information from the BIS database can email us and, and um, there's in fact a list on, the, on our corporate MCH website which lists all the names in the BIS database. Um, but as you point out, Jock, there is also some, um, some issues around transcription errors and um, information um, which is not checked. So. We're, we're still thinking about it. It's, it's in our minds, but we haven't made a decision about it yet. Hmm. Um, bearing in mind that the honours list has just come out, um, how much notice do you take of things like that in selecting subjects? Obviously, you can't take too much notice of all the QSMs that are there, but hmm. um, top twins are going to be a future one. Um, since they've got a top honour as well? Well, we, so far, we, I'm, I have looked at the honours lists as one category for choosing people, along with um, things like people who got the Hector Award and, and various high-level awards. That's usually a pretty good way of figuring out who are the very high-level people. We haven't gone through with a checklist and tried to mark them off, but I think it's usually, if, if somebody gets a CEBE, that's a usually a pretty good indication that they're a pretty strong contender for the DNZB. Kia ora, Tim. I think there's still a problem um, that may or may not be a serious one. Um, when somebody mentioned the engineers and foresters, you're quite right. But I'm thinking now that television and radio have blended us sort of into one nation where the greats and, and those with names do come forward. Um, but n not always with the degree of representativeness that might be ideal for, the, for a dictionary subject. And that comes back again to the regions and sort of the far north and the far south and, and the west and the east for that matter. I mean, pe people who just do get over overlooked and how you're going to draw in from those areas without the uh, onus of setting up major working parties, which can be... Not, they were not particularly expensive. They were actually very, very good and very helpful. So it might be easier than we had, an easier task than we had in actually also asking them to fill in BIS. Um, just a thought. Mm. 
You're right. It is a challenge. Um, the re representing the regions is very difficult. Certainly, in my, I've done preliminary research through um, the sort of the, the low-hanging fruit, I suppose you'd say, of things like honours list obituaries and things like that. And I've compiled lists um, just as an initial exercise of scoping, really, to work out, you know, how what scale of, of job this is. And certainly, those easy sources do very overrepresent. The, the central cities, which is to be expected. Um, and I, I don't have an answer right this minute. It's one of the many questions I trust that you will look, look forward to helping me make that, to sort, solve that problem. Hi, Tim. Um, would you consider doing collaborative work with organisations like the Naitahu Archives, who have done, and I mean, that's obviously it's through a particular group of people, but who have done a lot of this research and have the resource and capacity to feed into something like this? As it happens, we're doing that very thing at the moment. Um, Naitahu, for those of you who don't know, have just published a book called Tangata Naitahu, which was um, the, the Naitahu archive had prepared and planned a whole lot of biographies to be fed into the DNZB process, and as I understand it. And when the DNZB didn't resume, they decided to publish them themselves. Um, so they have done one volume and they're planning subsequent volumes. And it, as it happened, when that book was published, we were in the process of planning the suffrage round, and one of the people in that book was one of the people we were going to commission a biography of. So, you know, and that book also includes um, DNZB entries. So we thought, well, there's no point in commissioning a whole new biography. So we are republishing one of their biographies in a modified form. We've expanded it a bit to add a bit more, um, a bit more coverage of that individual's life. But so, absolutely, yes. <laughs> 